If you had to guess, I wonder how many words you think you say every single day. If you had to guess. Any guesses out there? How many words does the average person say every day? How many words every day? Any guesses? At least how many? At least two. That's probably true. I hear 30,000 in the back. Okay, that's kind of a lot. How many, how many words do you think you say? 8,000? That's a pretty good guess. 13,000? That's, that's a really good guess. It depends on who you are, obviously. We don't all say the same amount of words every day. But they've estimated that the average guy says somewhere around 5,000 to 7,000 words a day. And the average lady says somewhere between 13 and 20,000 words every day. So average that out, I don't know, somewhere. I mean, some of us talk more than others. I probably talk a lot of words every day, it's especially on a day like today when we're spending a lot of time together and we're talking for an extended period of time. We talk a lot, and if you think about it, we say a lot of things to a lot of people, and that's fine. We write a lot of texts. We write a lot of things down on pen and paper, not so much anymore. But on the average day, if you just took an average Tuesday, you probably talk a lot, and that's normal. You talk to your friends, you talk to your family, you talk to your parents, you talk to people online. You do plenty of talking, plenty of words um, come from you, whether digitally or actually coming out of your mouth. But we've been talking this weekend about talking to God, which clearly if we talk to God, those are probably the most important words that we could ever speak in a day. I mean, if you really look at 7,000 words to 20,000 words, if you took all of it and transcribed it, if, even if you're a guy who only talks 7,000 words, if you took every word you spoke in a single day, you would write a 17-page MLA formatted paper. 17 pages. That's 7,000 words. And ladies, if you speak, let's say, 20,000 words, that would be a 50-page paper every single day. So most of us are not at a loss for words, but like we talked about last night, many of us are at a loss for words when we talk to God. Because we think, well, what should we say? And some of us, because of a fear of not knowing what to say, or maybe because we're distracted with other things, we never say anything to God. That's what we talked about last night. Well, tonight what I want to talk about is if we are speaking to God, maybe let's say 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 words, let's just say, every single day. If we start praying to God, we need to make those words count more than any others, because if we rank all the people that we're talking to, there's things that are important, there's things that are less important. Talking to your parents is really important. Talking to people at school in the middle of a, a science class, less important. There are some words that you write down that are supremely important, like if you sign your name on a legal document, and then there's some words that you write down that are just on a post-it note. They're just ideas for later. Our words don't always carry equal value, but if we're just going to put it on a scale, how valuable should our words to God be? If he's the most important person in the universe, what kind of words does he deserve? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. It's not right for us to talk about prayer and not get to this topic about when we pray, what should we say? Because really that's where the rubber meets the road for us. It's one thing to say, oh, we don't pray enough. But really, if we're saying, all right, I'm committed to pray, here's, here's the idea. What should we say to God? So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 11, which is an important passage where the disciples actually asked Jesus. They asked him, uh, what should we pray about? In fact, these disciples come to Jesus after Jesus is doing teaching and he's doing these miracles. And they come to Jesus and they ask him a good question, the right question. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, which is what he did often. Jesus would go different places and he would pray. Sometimes he would get away from all of his disciples on purpose. In fact, sometimes I think he did it very purposely so that they would see what he did and ask questions like they did this time. Luke 11, 1 says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he had finished, so I don't know if he's praying out loud, I don't know if he's praying silently, it doesn't say. But when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's say Jesus had just been away talking to God for an hour or two hours or three hours. The disciples probably felt what you feel. It's like, I can't do that. I mean, I, I don't know the last time I spent three hours completely focused on God. So, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? And then he says, as John taught his disciples. So John the Baptist was even teaching people how to pray. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Uh, these are... 
just the key summary points of what Jesus said about prayer. He said plenty more about prayer. We see even more detail in Matthew chapter 6. But the reason I want you to look at this text tonight is the disciples asked the right question. Lord, teach us to pray. I want you to have that same perspective as we talk about prayer. I want you to adopt that right now if you think about it. Um, I want to be taught how to pray. Because naturally I'm not very good at it. And if we just take our track record and how good we are at praying and how long we pray and the things that we pray about, most of us are not naturally good at praying. Now, we obviously can say some things to God. It doesn't take training to explain our hurts to God. There's a famous pastor in the 1800s in England named J.C. Ryle who said, if you go to the doctor, you can at least tell them where the pain is. And we can all do that with God, even if it's not eloquent. We can tell God where our pains are. That doesn't take any training. But to pray in a way that Jesus taught, that does take some training. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, when you pray. That's going to be the theme above all these points. Like last night I said, if you never pray, dot, 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 and we had the points. Tonight what we're going to say is when you pray, here's what we want to do. First of all, if you look in this text, Luke eleven two says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Luke eleven two is a great little snapshot summary of what the Bible teaches about coming to prayer. Because if you understand what prayer is, I mentioned this at the beginning, but when we go to pray, we are standing before the Lord who made heaven and earth who listens to the prayers of millions and billions of people, and you are going to talk to him. What kind of attitude do you think you need as you approach God, the one who created you, the one who created the moon and the stars, the one who's existed from all of eternity? What kind of attitude, what kind of heart should we bring to that? It's pretty obvious. I mean, a lot of you already know this, but point number one, I want you to write this down. When you pray, you need to stop and recognize the power of the one you pray to. Before you pray, before you ramble off a prayer, before you get into talking about something else, I just want you to stop and recognize who you're talking to. There's power in the Lord. It's the same thing you would do if, if you're going to your boss or you're going to a teacher or maybe even a principal's office. Right? And with the principal's office back in the day, I know probably doesn't happen anymore. I don't know if you go to the principal's office now, only maybe if you're in trouble. But there's like the secretary outside that's like guarding the door. And then there's the door. And then you got to make it within the door. Then you take a seat in his office, right? And the scary, you know, <laughs> old movie trope of like going to see the principal. There's all these barriers. And once you make it in, now it's really important what you have to say. You probably are preparing on the way to go to the principal's office. The Bible says that we do the same thing when we come before the Lord. God is in heaven. Now think this through. Right? He is in heaven. He's not here with us in the same way that he's in heaven. Right? His special presence is in heaven. The Bible also teaches that his special presence is within every believer. But when we go to God, many people have said this, and it's a quotation from Hebrews 4, but it's like we're going into the throne room of God. If you right now were transported from where you're sitting in Big Bear, California, and you were transported into the throne room of God, and you saw with your eyeballs what's going on in God's throne room, I wonder how that would change the way you pray. If you saw God in his glory, how would it change the way you pray? Well, there's someone who did see God in his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, maybe you know this, but Isaiah is a prophet of God in the Old Testament, and He's actually more righteous than most people, but God lets him in to see what the throne room of God looks like. And as he goes in and he talks to him, basically, here's what Isaiah says. This is Isaiah 6, 5. After he sees God, he says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. The first thing he can think about after seeing God and his glory is, I'm a sinner, which is the same thing all of us should do, right? The more we see how God's good, the more it shows, wow, there's a distance between myself and God. And he says, I'm a man who, of unclean lips. That was in the book of Isaiah, but actually way back in Israel's history, there was a man who saw God, and God appeared in a burning bush. This is Exodus chapter 3. Um, the prophet named Moses approaches God, but God warns Moses of something. It's an interesting little scene. We don't talk about it very much. But in Exodus 3, 5, it says that as Moses is approaching God, and God presents himself in this burning bush, God tells Moses, take off your sandals, for the place that you're standing is holy ground. Right? What's different between the sand that's close to the bush and the sand that's far away from the bush? Well, the only thing that's different about it, I guess, is that God's closer to one and further from the other. Right? So God says, look, you need to show some reverence before you come and talk to me. And that was when Moses was a far way away. And, and the point is, God is not different. The Bible actually teaches that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's nothing changed about God. 
God is still as holy as he's ever been. And he always is warning people, hey, if you're going to come approach me, you need to have the right view. Even a guy like Peter, when he sees Jesus in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus was doing miracles. And this is Jesus, which at the time, right, he doesn't look like something all that special. He looks like a, a, a carpenter. And even Peter, after seeing all the good things Jesus did, in Luke 5, Peter says, depart from me. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm a sinful man. That's the weird response that sinful people have to God. And it's not weird when you understand who God is. And even, even a righteous person like John, John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1, when he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, he says, when I saw Jesus high and lifted up, I, I fell on my face as though dead. I just wonder if those four people, Moses, Isaiah, Peter, John, if you think of those people, we, we sung a song tonight about the heroes of the faith. I think all of those guys count as heroes of the faith. All of them, when they approach God, it's like God is overwhelming to them. And they have to stop. And they have to recognize his power. I think the same thing's true for us. Before we talk about all the specifics of what we should say, I want to talk about the attitude that we bring to our prayers. That's what point number one is all about. You need to approach God with the right level of humility. You need to approach God, not flippantly, and you understand what I mean by flippantly, like um, just going to him and he's my buddy, he's my friend, he's this. Be careful about that. Right? Be very, very careful how you approach God. In fact, there's people in the Bible who approach God to even worship God, who do it wrongly, who are put to death. I know that's a weird story, but in Leviticus chapter 10, two of Aaron's sons, and Aaron was Moses' brother. So this is a very righteous family. These two guys approach God and they worship to God. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. And it says that they presented some offering to God that was wrong. And we don't actually know if what they presented to God was wrong or if what they were doing was wrong in their presentation. In fact, right after that, um, God speaks to the priests and says, make sure you stop drinking wine. So it's possible that Nadab and Abihu came to God drunk it's like they were doing something before and then they come flippantly into God's presence. But Leviticus chapter 10 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So whatever was going on with them, whether they're thinking, I'm just going to be creative and worship today, or, or they were drunk perhaps, um, they offer something to God that God says not okay. Verse number two says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. These two guys die, why? Well, because they worship wrong. Because they approached God wrong. That's really what was wrong with what they did. They approached God in the wrong way. They didn't view him as holy. And why do I say that? Well, because he says in the next verse, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, quote, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. So back in the Old Testament, you had these priests who had special access to God. And here's what God says, of the people that come close to me, I will be sanctified. God hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is now who comes close to God. It's not the priests of the Levites. Now it's the Christian. But think about what he's saying. If you come close to God, God says, I will be sanctified. I will be reverenced. I will be held in awe. I will. That's what God says. He says he won't tolerate anything else. And says, and before all people, I will be glorified. I think this through. Who is responsible in our world today for glorifying God? Is it your non-Christian neighbor? Is it your person who doesn't know God? Is it you know, a person who's never heard the gospel? Who's really responsible for glorifying God? If you're a Christian, it's you. It's me. I'm responsible for glorifying God. You're responsible for glorifying God. Just like these two guys were. And it didn't matter what family you came from. I mean, these guys were royalty in Israel, if you think about it. They were as high up as you could possibly get. Moses' nephews. Aaron's sons. And God goes like this. Done. It says right after that, and Aaron held his peace. So Aaron was, seemed to be a little bit upset at God about this, and rightfully so, right? He's thinking, why did my son, what did they do? My sons just offered something that was wrong. I, whatever, right? We all make mistakes. And he was upset. But when Aaron heard that, he took a step back, and he did exactly what we should do. God is holy. God is righteous. I'm not. I understand. Whatever God does is good. Now, that might seem unrelated to you, but 
the reason I like what Leviticus chapter 10 uh, verses 1 to 3 say is it shows us among those who draw near to God, God will be sanctified. And if you're a Christian, you're someone who draws near to God. We talked about that last night. Right now, you get to have this close relationship with God. And here's what God demands of you and of me. He says, I will be sanctified in you. That means before we approach the actual words, we need to come to him rightly. Uh, one thing that we don't often consider in the Old Testament, there's those Ten Commandments. And in those Ten Commandments, you find things like serve God alone. And don't, you know, dishonor the Sabbath. And honor your father and mother. And, you know, don't kill people. Don't murder people. You know, don't, don't steal from people. All these rules, right? Well, the third commandment is a very interesting one. It's the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? And most people... All that they think about that is just that, oh, it's, it's just using God's name as a curse word, which obviously is taking it in vain. But I actually don't think that's what they were expecting back in the Old Testament. Because you know what? They would never dare to use God's name in vain. Right? Unlike many Christians today who I hear take God's name in vain all the time. They wouldn't even dare to do that in the Old Testament. Here's what it looked like. Here's a little milder for, form of taking God's name in vain. Coming to worship doing the prayers, singing the songs, saying God's name over and over again, and never sanctifying God as holy, never reverencing him. Um, Just, you know, stop saying God's name in vain is is like the low bar of that. What I think he's really driving at for these Israelites is that they would respect God the way he needed to be respected. All those things were true then. They got to be true now for us. And I'm afraid that what we often do when it comes to prayer Maybe you've done this, and I know in the past I've done this, is you go from ha-ha, joke-joke, talk about whatever you're talking about, whatever, whatever, pray, 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 and then back into whatever. The problem is, when we do that, I think what we're doing is we're disrespecting God. And I'm not saying you can't, you know, have fun and then pray and then have fun again. What I'm saying is, if we approach God in a way that doesn't respect him as holy, can you think that God's happy with that? Do you think that's a good setup for how we pray. I don't think it is because Jesus makes it very clear. How do we pray? Well, we say, hallowed be your name. That doesn't mean we need to say those exact words. It just means we need to hallow God, which means respect him as holy. Practically, here's what this is going to look like for you and me if we really apply this. It's before you pray and before you roll into a prayer, whether it's before dinner or whether you know, it's in anything, you need to stop and pause one of my youth pastors growing up would say, and I would see him practice it, when he said, let's pray, he would like wait and then pray. And he taught about that, and I remember like, oh, I understand what he's doing. He's stopping before he starts saying stuff to God. He stops and thinks, well, I've got to remember who God is first before I even let a word come out of my mouth because I don't want to say things that I shouldn't to God. I don't want to use words that I shouldn't. I, would, I don't want to offer praise that, that's wrong. I want to be careful because I'm approaching God. Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, put it like this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer sacrifice of, of a fool. For they do not know what they're doing is evil. Right? So he's trying to say, uh, it's better for you to go to the worship service and to not like give an offering of worship and to just listen than for you to give an offering that's a foolish offering or, or not thought through. Think that through. It's like it would be better for you to go to church, listen, never take notes, never sing a worship song, just pay careful attention than for you to do all that and take God's name in vain because you're not respecting God as holy. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. Maybe that's mind-blowing to you. Maybe it's not, but that's what he's saying here. He says, do not be rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Think that through. This is Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be rash. That means quick or illogical or driven by completely your emotions without any thoughts behind it. That's what it means to be rash. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart. So your mouth, right? It's what you say, but your heart. He says even go down to the heart, which is what we always have to go down to with any words we say. He says go down to your heart. Don't be hasty to utter a word before God. And here's what he says. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Which is exactly what Isaiah learned. That's exactly what John learned in Revelation. God is in heaven, you are on earth. So before we talk about the specifics of, okay, let's say this, let's not say this. 
that one thought, do you understand? If you bring that one thought into your prayer, that's gonna correct like half of our problems with praying. If we stop and take a second or two or three before you pray and don't be embarrassed by it, please don't think, oh, I can't do that because people will think I'm weird. Stop it, right? You're going before God. Don't worry about what they think, okay? But if you say, well, let's pray, and then you stop, think about God, think how he's holy, okay? Then you enter his throne room like you actually respect him, right? You do that, that's gonna change the kind of things that we pray about, right? Because you're not gonna offer prayers that, that are wrong. You're not gonna do things that are wrong because you won't be hasty. It's exactly Solomon's wisdom. He says, therefore, by the way, let your words be few. What, what words? Like just words that we say in general? Probably, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying let your prayers be short. That's interesting wisdom. Right? And you might think, well, why, why does he say let your prayers be short? Jesus says the same thing. He doesn't say, oh, you know, don't pray for a long time. He says, especially when it comes to in front of people. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who make long prayers. This is Matthew 6, 5 to 8. He gives this big teaching on prayer. We're going to talk a little bit more about it tomorrow. But Matthew 6, 5 to 8, he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't just blabber words to God. When you're praying, by the way, if you're praying in a group of people, your praying needs to not be directed at the people that are next to you. Your praying needs to be to God. Right? And when we join in group prayer, what we do is, it, like let's say I'm listening to someone else pray, I'm not just hearing them and saying, okay, oh, that's interesting, oh, that's good. Um, I am taking what they're saying and saying, yes, God, I agree with that, and then praying those things to God. That's what it means to lead someone in prayer. But there's a temptation that we have, especially when we pray with other people, that instead of talking to God, we're really just talking to the people we're talking to. Um, that's not prayer. That's just talking to them. Um, there's, I remember in a preaching class I took, I don't remember who said this, but um, maybe it was a professor or a book, maybe, I don't know. But it's, the, the concept was when you're preaching, like don't preach during your prayers, especially in a sermon, right? Don't, don't tell the people, oh, you do X, Y, and Z when you're praying because you're praying to God. It's just an interesting thought. We don't want to be um, using a bunch of words that we shouldn't. So practically, what am I saying? Stop and think before you pray. Um, furthermore, when prayer is going on, concentrate focus. That's why when you were a little kid, they taught you to bow your head and close your eyes and maybe even fold your hands. You know why they taught you to do that? It's not because the Bible says you have to. It's that that gets distractions out of your eyes. It gets distractions away from your hands. This is kind of weird, but imagine if for the rest of your life, you always prayed with your hands clasped like this. Again, you don't have to. This is not a rule or a law, but if you did that, do you understand? You would get a lot less distracted. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't grab your phone. You wouldn't think, oh, i got to write that. You would, you know, keep it like that. If you kept your eyes closed forever. And again, it's not a rule. It's not like you have to. But the reason there's some wisdom in it when we pray is it keeps us undistracted. When you stand in the throne room of God and you need to be focused, concentrated. Also, when it comes to coming into things like this and worshiping, where God's name is on the screen and you're saying things to God, even that, do you know that worship songs, all that is is prayer? It's just prayer with music. That's all it is. So that's why oftentimes those two things go together. When we want to pray a lot, you know something that helps us pray? Listening to good worship music that gives us inspiration. Say, yeah, I need to pray about that. Because that's what we do when we worship. We're just praying to God. You might think, oh man, I've never prayed for 45 minutes. Well, if you've worshiped and you actually have engaged with your mind, you have prayed for 45 minutes. Because that's what worship is. But here's a warning for you. Don't come into worship and mouth the lyrics and don't mean it. You understand that this is a very hard thing, but what do you think God meant by do not take the Lord's name in vain? Don't say my name meaninglessly. You understand that that happens in church all the time? People use God's name and say God's name and they say things about God and they never engage with their mind? That's using God's name in a less than way. We need to be careful about this. We need to be contemplative. Ultimately, we shouldn't be able to go to God on our own. Isaiah knew that. John knew that, but we get to go to God, right? And I want you to realize that the privilege we have of getting to go to God is something that was um, not ours inherently, not like we deserve it inherently. The work of Jesus on the cross and the work of Jesus in his perfect life actually secures us the privilege of access to God. What I mean by that is in the Old Testament, you couldn't talk to God, I couldn't talk to God. There's some righteous people who do pray, but really the way to get access to God is through a priest, It's through a person from a 
specific lineage, actually Aaron's lineage. And you had to go through him and you had to offer a sacrifice and he had to you know, actually do the sacrifice and you got benefit from it, but you didn't have the same access. But in the New Testament era, the church, now you have the amazing privilege of all being like little priests. You guys studied the book of Hebrews last year. Right? To understand that we have, the, it's the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, which means we all get to go to God, but we don't get to go to God on our own. We go to God through Jesus, which is a key component to prayer. I'd love for you to write this down for point number two. When you pray, come to God through your representative, Jesus. I use representative as a word to kind of display this concept. Once you write that down, turn in your Bibles to the right just a little bit to John chapter 14. You're in Luke. Turn to John chapter 14 once you write that down. John 14, Jesus makes one of the biggest promises in all of the Gospels. It's not very appreciated, this promise, but it's an amazing promise. This is John 14, verse 13. He's about to leave his disciples. He's about to leave, and he has some instructions, and he has some things he's going to say. In chapter 14, he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. But while I'm gone, I'm going to send someone to you, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you when I'm gone. But he also talks about prayer. Look at John 14, look at verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I wonder how much you've contemplated that, that promise. How much have you thought through the implications of that promise? Jesus says, which again, he's talking to people who believe. You see that in verse 12. He's not saying this to, to people who are his enemies. He's not saying this to people who reject the gospel. He's not saying this to people who hold on to their sins. He's, he's saying it to you if you believe in him, if you're a Christian. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, in my name is another phrase that I'm talking about right here for representative. Representative means in my name. So uh, think this through. You can't just go up to somebody who's rich and powerful and you know fly on their private jet or go on their yacht. You can't do that. But if you know their kid, then you can do that. You can't come to your, you know, okay, oh, here's my name. You know, I deserve to be brought on this yacht. I deserve to fly on this private jet. You can't do that. But if you flash someone else's name and say, oh, I'm here with, uh, you know, this person's son or this person's daughter, then now you all of a sudden have access to the father of this illustration, right, who has the private jet and the yacht or whatever, right? That's the concept of coming to God in Jesus' name. The point is, it's humbling for us because it teaches, I can't go to God on my own. You can't go to God on your own, but you can come through Jesus. That's huge. And, and the promise he makes is not, hey, um, if you ask some things, uh, then I, I might do them, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He says, no, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Like, that's a really hard thing. You gotta understand what that means. Because if that means what it sounds like it means, um, that would change our prayer too. What is this talking about? Well, this is a hard text because immediately what we tend to do is we insert into that little word whatever. See that little word whatever? You know what we insert in there? All the James 4.3 stuff. Remember James 4.3? He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? So immediately, we're disqualified from whatever if what it is is just us, you know, wanting to be promoted or wanting to be praised or wanting some self-glory. We do that and that's what we're praying for. Well, then immediately it doesn't fall into this category, right? Because God already said in his word, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is whatever you ask in my name, things that are in accordance with God's will, and right here, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The whole set up for prayer, right? And here's the mechanics of it. You direct your thoughts to God, right? God hears them and sees them, but what makes them efficacious? That's a big word. What makes them um, meaningful to God? What makes them powerful? It's not that you're saying them. It's that Jesus is taking them and he's the one who stands between you and God. And, it's, and picture this, kind of an odd picture, but it's like Jesus takes your prayer and he's the one who speaks them into God's ear. And it's as if Jesus was praying the things that you prayed. Right? And again, Jesus does not pray everything that you pray. In fact, the, the, the scriptures say in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit intercedes for our weaknesses. Even when we don't know what to say, it's like the spirit takes our 
in that text it says, are groanings too deep for words, right? Maybe you felt a sadness in your life that's so severe you can't even put it into words how, how bad you feel. That text says it's like the, the Spirit takes that, puts the right words to it, and gives it to the Father, right? And that's the prayer, right? John 17 says that Jesus prayed for us. The book of Hebrews teaches that Jesus is right now currently praying for us. And it uses a word that we talked about last night really quickly, the word intercede or intercession, right? This is what happens, um, pardon the bad analogy, but this is what happens when um, someone has a crush on someone else, okay? Um, This is what happens. You got two people, right? But I understand how it works. I've been there. I've done it in this very room. (laughs) <laughs> you like somebody you're, gonna tell, you're not going to tell them no, no 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 you're not going to tell them you're not a fool you know what you're going to do you're going to talk to their friend and their friend is going to be like oh you like such and such oh okay, okay okay I'll try to figure it out and then they go back and they blabber everything to the other friend oh did you hear he likes you right and then it's like now you got a middleman right now you're working with a with an intermediary or an intercede an inter, an interceding person okay uh this is a little picture of intercession okay it's not a very uh, sacred type of intercession but it's you know it's something you you, you can track with me um you don't have the boldness <laughs> to go to the person or you feel like if you go to the person you'll be rejected but you think that maybe if you talk to their friend maybe that will get you an, an audience um it's not exactly like that, okay? So don't, don't take that as, okay, this is exactly what it's like. But that's the element, right? Having someone be the middleman in between the two of you. That's basically what it's saying. Jesus stands between us and God. First Timothy 2, 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Right? There's one person that could take my prayers and take them to God and whisper them in God's ear. And God actually cares to answer them. Not that God doesn't care about me, right? That's not the point. And not that God doesn't care about you, but it's one thing for you to ask. It's another thing for Jesus to ask. It's one thing for you, going back to the other illustration of the private jet and the yacht. It's one thing to you ask, for you to ask, you know, Mr. Such and Such, Mr. Musk or Mr. You know, whoever, uh, yeah, that's probably, maybe it will use a fake, you know, what's a, what's a very fake um, billionaire name? Mr. Smith. Okay, that's a lame name. But yeah, it's one thing for you to ask Mr. Smith, hey, um, you know, I saw the helipad on the, on the yacht. Could we like, I don't know, call in a helicopter to like come take us to, you know, some other place? Yeah, this is weird analogy, right? But you're not calling up Mr. Smith and saying, yo, Mr. Smith, I need that. You can't do that, right? But you get in the son's ear, or better yet, you get in the daughter's ear, right? And she says, "Uh, Dad, uh, can we take the helicopter? And he's, oh, okay. And he does it, right? Again, not a perfect analogy, but that's the idea, right? The son speaks to the father on our behalf. We go to Jesus who takes it to the father. That's amazing that we get to do that. Here's what the Bible says about this. Um, I've been alluding to it, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 you don't have to turn there, but I'd love for you to write that down. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us, Christians, hold fast to our confession, which means we're gonna continue to believe in Jesus. We're gonna continue to respect Jesus as exactly what we said he was. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's, it's not like we would pray to Jesus and Jesus says, well, you know what, I'm not going to take that prayer to the Father because, you yeah, know, they don't really need that and that's kind of lame and, you know, oh, they shouldn't feel hungry, they shouldn't feel sad. Oh, man, why are they heartbroken? That's lame. Right? Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. The text says he was one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So Jesus is the perfect person to take your prayer to the Father. He has the ear of the Father and he has the heart that understands what human life is like. And he understands what temptation is like. And he understands what heartbreak is like. And he understands what betrayal is like. And he understands what pain feels like. And he understands what it's like to feel hungry and to cry at a funeral. He knows all of that pain and he can take your prayers to the Father. It's the perfect person to do it. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, because we trust Jesus is right there to take our prayers to God, we can come to God with boldness. We can ask things of God, which again, 
you might have a sense of after point number one, I don't even want to ask him for anything. I just want to tell him how great he is, right? If that's how you think, you're starting to understand God better. Now you understand the amazing privilege of asking. We often think, oh, well, God wants us to ask and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's not a big deal. No, that's the big deal, that he would even invite you and me to ask him of things. But he does. And in our text, as you look at it in your Bible real quick, just read it again. Whatever you ask in my name, through Jesus, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what are the things that you could pray for where God would be glorified through Jesus? That's what he's saying. Just ask for those. Whatever would glorify God through Jesus. And then he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's trying to inspire you with confidence. That's what I want you to do tonight. I want to inspire you with confidence that you bring things to God that God wants to hear. Right? You bring things like requests like, I want you to be glorified at school. I want you to be glorified at my school in whatever I say. So please help me. I, I don't know how to do it necessarily. I don't have everything to say. But God, be glorified through me today. I want to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't know God. And I want you to be glorified through my mouth today. I want you to be glorified through my attitude today. Those are perfectly in line with what he's saying here. So he says, ask those things. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. That's an amazing promise. Similarly, James chapter 1, verse 5, is another amazing promise. James 5, or James chapter 1, verse 5, you should write that down. James 1, 5 through 8. That text says that if anyone lacks wisdom, right, if you're a Christian and you're struggling with, I don't know what the right thing for me to do is. I don't know what the right college is. I don't know if this relationship is right. I don't know if this thing I'm doing is right. I need wisdom, okay? All of us need wisdom, every last one of us. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, so ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Reproach means he doesn't look down on you. And here's where that's encouraging. Sometimes it feels bad to ask God for wisdom again because maybe we didn't follow his advice last time. Maybe we didn't do what he said last time. He says, continue to ask me. I, I won't give you this reproach. I won't even look down on it. And you confess your sin to God, he'll forget it in the sense that he's not counting that sin against you and you move on and move forward. God gives generously to all without reproach. But this is James 1.6, listen to this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That's not a good description. Um, some people in the Christian world today take the idea of doubt and then preach about it like it's a good thing. Like, oh, you should always have doubts. And Well, it depends what we're talking about, right? Should you have doubts about God? No. That's bad, right? And if you have doubts about God, the answer is not to say, well, you know, <clears throat> I'm just getting comfortable with all the doubts, right? No, the answer is, okay, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to seek the truth, and then I don't want to doubt anymore, right? Uh, if we stay doubting, that's problematic, right? Especially if we have intentional ignorance, like we talked about last weekend in Ephesians. If the doubt is because we just don't want to accept what God says, that's especially bad. But he says here, don't ask with doubt. Ask God for wisdom. That's what the text is talking about. And if you ask God for wisdom and you don't doubt it, and you say, I trust God will give me wisdom. I know he'll give me wisdom. Even if he doesn't give it to me right now, he's going to give it to me when I need it. I trust him. It says, You'll have it. It says, for the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord if he doubts. If, if you ask God and think, ah, I don't think he's really going to do it. Well, then great. You're not going to get what you pray for. Even wisdom. Even the God who gives generously to all without reproach. Because this text is super crystal clear. Don't pray and doubt. He says, verse 8, he is a double-minded man unstable in all of his ways. Right? I don't want that to be a description of me. I, know, I don't want that to be a description of you. I don't want you to be unstable. So he says, trust me, trust me. Ask and trust, ask and trust. I may be thinking, okay, well, what are the specifics? Let's get to the specifics, okay? Well, we're gonna get to the specifics. I want you to turn um, to 1 John chapter five real quick. Turn to the right in your Bibles. 1 John chapter five, verse 14. You're, you're gonna see some specifics here about what we should be asking God for. We talked about glorifying God. That's what needs to be part of our prayer. We need to stop and pray. We also need to say, okay, I'm coming through Jesus, this proper recognition. I'm going to pray for things that glorify the Father. We already talked about that. We've been saying a lot about that. But, but listen to this. This is 1 John chapter 5. I hope you, hope you turn there with me. 1 John 5, verse 14. <clears throat> Actually, drop back to verse 13. Let's just get the context here. 
He says, I write these things to you. It's this little book of 1 John that many of you studied in the past. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he writes this to Christians. It says, that you may know that you may know that you have eternal life. So the purpose of this little book of 1 John that many of you studied in the past and many of you study it in, in relation to like trying to figure out if you're a Christian or what this book is really meant for is if you are a Christian to give you a ton of assurance to say, you believe in Christ? Okay, I want this book to affirm you. But that's why it's a good book for evangelism because especially backdoor evangelism, which means people who think they're Christians, it's a good book for them because if they go through this book and they leave, instead of assured, if they leave like, wow, I am not saved, well then this is good because it exposed that. But he says, that's why I wrote this book to you. Verse number 14. And this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the requests that we've asked of him. What's the confidence that Christians have before God? What's the confidence? Is it that when I die, I go to heaven? Well, that's part of the confidence, but what does the text say? Here's the confidence, and here's how it showed and played out in our world, that we can pray and we can trust that God answers our prayers. How? What? What are the prayers about? Well, things that are according to his will. That's point number three. I want you to write that down. Start asking God for big things that he cares about. Start asking God for big things that he cares about. There's so many things in the scriptures that are so clear that God cares about. There's so many things that we often pray for that not that God doesn't have any regard for them, but they're, they're not as important Right after Jesus said, hallowed be your name, in Matthew chapter 6, this is Matthew 6.10, he says two more prayer requests. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those are two requests that Jesus says, here's, here's what we should ask God for. Ask that his kingdom would come. So what does that mean? Well, it means that, in, in some respect, that Jesus would come back soon. It also means that people would start living like Jesus is their king. And that's what the next verse says, it says, and, and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So for you, if your life looked more like doing God's will on earth that is as, as it is in heaven, you would be doing things here that would be righteous and that your heavenly self, that when you go to heaven, you'd be like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. Right. With our words, with our time, with our worship, like getting people getting people, not just ourselves, but even other people, we want them to worship God too. That's what it looks like for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. So um, think this through. What should you be asking God about? Well, ask God for those things. Ask God that his will, what he wants, would be done in my life. So many of us are so quick. Let's just use this example, okay? Um, Very, very simple. And you'll all probably go through something like this. You all got to make a decision about what you want to do for college, what you want to do for, for, you know, when you graduate high school. Everybody's got that decision, right? Whether you go in the workforce, whether you go to college, whether you play sports, or you got all these million decisions, right? Everyone's going to be confronted with some level of decisions. Okay? Oftentimes what we pray is, God, I pray that I get in this school. God, I, I pray that, you know, I go to this school. I, I pray that I get this job. And those are the things we pray about. And again, not to say that praying about those things are necessarily wrong, but here's the kind of thing that he encourages us to say. Here's what God says. Pray that his will will be done in your life <clears throat> as it would in heaven. So that's a little different than saying, please let me get into this college. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray to get into a college. What I'm saying is the bigger prayer and the more important prayer that you should be asking God is, God, wherever you want me to go to college, that's where I want to go to college. Whatever you want me to do for a job, that's what I want to do. So show me what that is. Please make it clear to me what you want me to do. Whoever you want me to marry, that's who I want to marry. Whoever you want me to have relationships with, that's who I want to have relationships with. Whatever friends you want me to have, God, that's the friends I want to have. That's what it means to pray for God's will to be done on earth that is in heaven with your simple, you know, you're not simple, they're, they're complex, but the big 
decisions of your life, specifically college. You could take whatever big prayer requests you have and you could run them through that filter. And that's what I want you to do. When you have your prayer requests and things that you think, okay, I need to pray for school. I need to pray for my health. I need to pray for my family. Okay, I want you always to run it through that filter. Whatever God wants. So what are some things that you should be praying for? Well, with people's health, God, please, please have this person recover. Please, we, that would just be such a good thing. But more importantly, God, please do whatever you think is best. Do whatever you think is best. Whether it's comfortable for me or not uncomfortable for me, because I can trust what the scriptures say, that God works all things out for good according to his plan for the people that love God. So for the people we're praying for, what do we want to pray? Well, we want to pray that people get relief from sicknesses. We want to pray that we would have wisdom. We want to pray that we'd, you know, have good things. Those are all fine to pray for. But the thing that needs to filter all those things through is, what does God want for me? That's super important. Jesus even prayed that. We, we mentioned it this morning. We read this text, Matthew 26, 39. Jesus went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed the same thing. That was Jesus looking into a massive trial, if you want to call it that. You might be looking into a massive trial and you might want out of it. You can ask God, God, can you keep me out of it? God, can you spare me from this? Jesus prayed the same thing. But at the end of the prayer and at the end of the day, here's what we need to say. And humbly, we say, but whatever you want, God, if you want me to face a big problem, whatever you want. That's what we need to pray about. That that changes our prayers. You mentioned this before, uh, but in all these things, we want to think, okay, what will bring God the most glory? Because God is holy and he's perfect. Whatever I'm praying for, I don't know everything. God knows everything. So I need to pray, God, do what you think is best. Listen to this. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other. My praise I never give to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. He's saying, I'm the Lord, and you know why you can know I'm the Lord? Because I predicted the future way back in the past. And he says, look at all the things I predicted. Isaiah 42 We've got this exile that's going to come to pass. And he says, look, it's all happening exactly like I said. And you know what? I'm going to tell you new things that are going to happen in the future. He goes on. He says, after that, the Lord is done speaking. Isaiah says, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and all their inhabitants. People from all over the world. People like us who are thousands of years removed, 2,700 years removed from this writing of Isaiah, who live on the other side of the planet, who live at a completely different time, speaking a completely different language. You know what all of us should do tonight? We should worship God. The same God who said, I am the Lord and there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning. Psalm 115 says the same thing. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, Why should the nations, why should evil people say, where is God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, right? This is the kind of attitude we should have about prayer. Now, I want to think through some specifics about things that God says in his word that he wants to do. And this is maybe the most applicational part of this sermon. I've been trying to shape your attitude about prayer and shape your attitude before you come to God. But what are the specific things that God says? Okay, I'm gonna do this, so pray for these things. Okay, here's the first big one. God says that he loves to save sinners who repent, okay? So that's one thing you should be praying for all the time because he said he's gonna do it. So one thing you should pray for and have confidence that God is gonna do is that he's gonna save sinners, sinners who repent in particular. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Similar to what God said in the book of Ezekiel. I don't like the death of the wicked. It's not like I would wish on people to keep turning from me, but they do. And people rebel against God, and he says, I, and I'm going to judge. But ultimately, God says, I want to save sinners. Luke 15, 7. This is a parable that Jesus told, but he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Right? God loves to save sinners. What's one thing you should be asking God for that he said he's going to do, that he said is in his will? Well, that he's going to save people. That's why, that's a constant thing that hopefully you hear us praying about at church. And hopefully that's something that you can adopt in your prayer life. That you can think of specific people in your life. And you can say, God, will you please save them? Will you please save them? Your word says that you love to save sinners. Your word also talks about in Hebrews chapter 7 that, that you take people who are ungodly, the uttermost, like the worst kinds of people, and you even save them. And that brings you even more glory. First Corinthians 1 says that he doesn't choose the powerful and the strong of the world, but sometimes he chooses the weak and the powerless just to display his great power. God, will you save this person? That's something you should pray for. Another thing that God says in particular, he says, this is what I want to do is he wants to make Christians more holy. That's something he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. So if we're going to pray for something that we can expect some prayer requests, that's one thing we should be praying for. Pray that God's people would be more holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I would love for all of you to just know that verse, to memorize that verse. There's perhaps not a more important verse for a Christian high school student to memorize than 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Very short, but listen to what it says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what does God want for you? He wants you to be more holy. That's the will of God. And then it says next, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So listen to that. That's a, that's a good little summary statement for high school students. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And then it goes on to this big discussion about that, but that's like the summary statement, right? And again, not that sexual immorality is the only sin, but that's a big one, right? And for many of us, that's the biggest one. He says, what does God want for you as a Christian? He wants to grow you. So what can you start praying? God, grow me, please. I, I wanna be away from this sin. God, sanctify me. God, show me what I need to do. And then actually, you need to do the things that God shows you. So many of us pray for sanctification and then we never do the things that God made clear for us. You say, God, take the sin out of my life, but then you never repent of it. You, God, you say, God, I don't want to have this problem anymore, but you keep the relationship that the problem is happening in. Right? So what does God want to do? He wants to grow you. But sanctification is something that we work together in, you and God. Obviously, God is the primary actor, right? But, but we work in that too. But pray for that. And God, by the way, um, the people who pray for sanctification, you can almost guarantee... Those are the people that are growing. The people that never pray, that never ask God for sanctification, the people that never think about it, guess what? Not much spiritual growth. God wants to save sinners. God wants to make people more holy, his righteous people. He also promised to come back again. That's the third thing that you should be praying for, that God said, this is my promise and I'm gonna fulfill it. So it's a good thing to pray for, that Jesus is going to come back. For many people, that is, that is a laughing matter. They think, ah, Jesus promised to come back. Yeah, right. Um, would Jesus possibly come back in my lifetime? Oh, yeah, right. right. Um, be careful before you say that. God's word is always trying to tell every generation of Christians, you need, to, you need to act like this is the end, right? Plan for the future, for sure. Raise godly children, for sure. Establish godly churches, establish godly schools. But also... Live as though the Son of Man is coming this year. Because he's going to come in an hour that we don't expect. You know the last thing in the Bible Jesus ever said? Chronologically, also at the end of your Bible, is the very, very last words of Jesus. Revelation twenty two twenty, Very last chapter. Second to last verse. It says, he who testifies to these things, this is Jesus, said this. Surely I am coming soon. Like if you had this relationship with this person and then the last thing that they ever said as they closed the door or they, you know, got out of the, the car to go on the airplane, right? If the very last thing that they said is, I'm coming soon, and you trusted that person, you'd be constantly thinking, when are they coming? When are they coming? And Jesus does not tell us when he's coming, but he always says every generation of Christians act like, I'm coming soon. And what a good thing it is that Jesus did not tell us when he's coming back. Some of you think, no, I wish I knew. No, you, like, think about how good it is. If you knew Jesus was going to come back in 100 years, a lot of us wouldn't give a rip about sanctification. We think, well, it's going to happen later. But God's word is just so wise, and God is just so, so smart, smarter than us, 
so that we live every year as though it could be our last. And we live every year as though Jesus could come back this year. That's something we should pray for. Another thing we should pray for, fourth thing we should pray for, is that God would spread his fame all over. That more people would recognize that God is good. Now, that's similar to God saving people, but there's a nuance to that. That doesn't even necessarily mean that people get saved, although that is the first and primary thing we're asking for. But in the Bible, there's oftentimes where people make these prayers to God, and the main reason they give to God, like they say, God, please do this, and the reason they give is that you would be more known throughout the world. Listen to this. This is Elijah praying. He goes on the top of this mountain while he is challenged by hundreds of prophets to a false god. By the way, this false god, the the god of Baal, was supposed to be the god of thunder and lightning. So they go up on a mountain, right, get this, they go up on a mountain, where the lightning god is supposed to live, right? And all these prophets try for hours and hours to get lightning to come down, but it doesn't happen. And the moment Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, against all odds, the moment he prays, listen to what he prays. Elijah, the prophet, came near. This is 1 Kings 18, 36. Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. So what does he say? God, show to everyone that you're God and that I'm your servant. That's helpful. And that I've done all these things at your word. Show them I'm not a crazy person. That's another translation, I guess. Um, Show them that I'm doing what you want. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So the prayer request to God is show them. Show them that you're God. Does he say call fire down from heaven? He doesn't do that. But that's exactly what God does. His prayer request is simply, God, show everyone that you're God and that their gods are fake. Show them. You know, you could pray that at your school too. You could pray, God, just show these people that you are real. Show them. God answers that prayer in different ways, but You see, that's the kind of prayer that God wants to answer. It glorifies him. It shows him. And then what does God do? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Again, this is in the context of these battles against the prophets. So you ask God to show his glory. I I don't think he's going to send a lightning storm to your school. I just don't think that's what's going to happen. Maybe, I, mean, I, can't, I wouldn't you know, count God against it, but that's not, that's not what you should expect. What you should expect and hope for is that God would show his power to people. That God would open people's hearts so that they would actually want to know about God and learn about God. These are huge things. One more passage I want you to turn to, an amazing prayer of the Bible, one of the most important. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament here. Near the end of your Old Testament. Daniel 9. I want you to see this prayer. <laughs> I want you to... Learn something from it. This is a big request that Daniel has. And he asks boldly, but he has these phrases that he uses. And again, I'm not saying, oh, you say the exact phrases, you get all your prayers answered. What I'm saying is I want you to notice some things about Daniel's prayer. And we're going to talk about this prayer tonight in small groups. This is a very helpful uh, teaching object, lesson for us to learn here. But Daniel 9, Daniel prays. Verse 1 talks about how it names the year. Verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived that the books of the numbers of the years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's saying, um, God promised to Jeremiah, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed for 70 years, but after that, he's got all these amazing promises. Isaiah does too. So he says, "I, I realize, wait a minute, it's been 70 years but we're all still in Babylon. Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, what is that? Well, it's where he wasn't eating any food. Perhaps he wasn't drinking any water. Was he starving himself, right? Why was he starving himself? Well, because he was trying to go to God and focus only on this prayer. This is a, this is a, Bad situation. He says, I'm going to God only. Sackcloth and ashes, that was a, a thing that they would do back then to show their, their, they were so sad. They would throw literally ashes right from the fire and they'd throw it on their head and they wouldn't wear their normal clothes. 
It's just very obvious that he's going to God and he's seeking something from God. He says, I prayed to the Lord. Look at verse four. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord. What does he start out by saying? The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. So what does he start out by doing? This is amazing. What does he start out by doing? It's like he steps back. He looks at God and he says, you're holy. You're righteous. You're the mighty God. You've done all of these things. You're amazing. He does exactly what point number one is all about. Verse number five. We've sinned and done wrongly and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So God, you had your rules. You told us what to do and we broke them. Now, did Daniel break them? In his own ways, but not like the people did before. The whole context is he's, he's going to ask God, can you bring us back to the land of Israel? He didn't do anything that would have caused them to go out of the land of Israel. He's praying on behalf of other people. This is an intercessory prayer. This is like praying for someone to be saved. He didn't even do this, but he says, God, we have done wrong. Verse number six. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and to those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. When you pray for lost people, um, you can pray things that are very similar to this. Lord, you are righteous. Your rules, they're always gonna remain. Everything you say is perfect. To us belongs open shame. We lie, we steal, we disobey, we take God's clear instructions and we break them. And as I look around on the people of the world, it's like everybody seems to do whatever they want to do and we don't care about you, God. We break your rules all the time. Verse number eight. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. And to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled and not obeyed the voice of the Lord by walking in his laws which he set before us, his servants, the prophets. So he's trying to say, look, the people of Israel have been doing wrong. We've been sinning. And what he's going to ask is that they'd come back into the land. Look, look at verse 17. Just drop down to the end of this. We won't read the whole thing. Verse 17 says, Now therefore, O Lord, our, our, our God, listen to the prayers of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Do you notice what he says right there? For whose sake? For him? for his descendants, for the other Israelites. He doesn't even pray for their salvation for their sake. He says, for your sake, God. I wonder how many of you have prayed for the salvation of a loved one like that. God, save them, not even just for them, although it's important, save them for you, for your glory. You're gonna show everybody. If you save them, God, you're gonna show everybody how good you are. Everyone in their friend circle, they're all going to say, that person was living their, their, their life on sin. But now, look at how they're changed. God, you're going to get glory through this. Do it for yourself. Do it for your own glory. It, 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 does it feel kind of like an argument? It's almost like a wrestling match between Daniel and God. He's saying, do it for yourself. Verse 8. Oh, he says, my God, incline your ear and hear. Listen. Open your eyes and see our desolation the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. He's, he's not saying, hey, God, I'm not coming to you because we've done what's right. It's the opposite, in fact. But because of your great mercy. When you pray for people and when you pray for people to be holy, that's a great thing to remind yourself and to tell God. God, I'm not coming to you because I'm righteous. I'm not coming to you because I think that I've earned this. So many of us think that God will answer our prayers if we do a bunch of things to earn it. He says, I'm not coming to you because I think I've earned it. I'm coming to you because you're good. There's all this recognition of God in this. There's his glory. There's not even a consideration of Daniel. The only thing that we find out about Daniel is that he's a part of this group of sinners and he recognizes that God's good. He says, for we do not present our pleas to you before, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. He says, don't wait another 70 years. Do it now, even for your own sake. So, oh, my God, because of your city and your people 
that are called by your name. And that's the end of the prayer. Except it's not because in verse 20, his prayer is interrupted. As he's praying that, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who's that? Well, that's an angel. The man Gabriel, the angel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand Speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. He goes on to explain the time, actually, when God would fix the ultimate problem of sin by sending the Messiah. The next thing that happens here is this prophecy about how many weeks, which is a reference to how many years it's going to take for the Messiah to come. And then God fulfilled it, and Jesus came exactly when he said. It's an amazing promise to study, but do you notice what he, ha- what he does right here? When he's praying, it's like God says, okay, I'm going to send an angel to answer your prayer. I like how he says, when you started praying, there was a word that was sent out to me. So it's like God, when he saw Daniel start praying, he said, okay, Gabriel, he's praying. It's time. We're going to do it now. And then Gabriel, which is weird, it's like it takes Gabriel some time to get there, which is an odd thought. I don't know how long it takes for Gabriel to get to Daniel. I mean, don't think too long about that. I don't understand that in particular. But uh, it, it takes him a while because it says at the beginning of his prayer, he's sent. And then he goes, and then Gabriel has a word for him. And he's about to say it. Um, when Daniel prayed, I want you to notice things about his prayer. He prays for God. He prays for God's glory and he's asking for salvation. He's asking for forgiveness and he's interceding on behalf of other people but he doesn't make it all about the other people. He makes it about God and and ultimately that's what we're talking about in point number three. When you ask big things, remember, ask big things that God cares about. D.L. Moody put it like this in a book of um, all about prayer. D.L. Moody was an evangelist who saw countless people saved. I mean, he went all around the United States and all around the world he wrote a book called Prevailing Prayer, which is all about praying until God answers. What he said in that book is a little quote. He says, we seek to move the arm that moves the world. That's what we do when we pray. We're asking God to do things, and we're asking the person who can do anything. I hope this quick sermon talks to your heart, and it speaks to you, and it encourages you to think, okay, what are the things we need to pray for now? That's what the small group time is about. I want part of it to be brainstorming of, okay, what am I going to pray about? What am I going to take from this? What am I going to change about my attitude? How am I going to pray differently? Let me go to God right now. Please pray with me as I pray. Take the words I'm saying. Bring them to God in your own words. But please pray these things with me. God, we are humbled by the vision that you gave to Isaiah about how holy and righteous you are. We're humbled that even he, who I'm sure was more godly and more self-controlled and more righteous and pure and better than us in many ways, I'm sure he was, even he said he was a man of unclean lips before you. We recognize we are the same. We ask you in your mercy to hear our prayers through Jesus. We know that we pray through his name because he is our intermediary. He's our interceder. Pray that we'd start asking for the right things for each and every one of us. I want to start praying the things that you want me to pray. So I ask tonight that you would start that habit and that process for all of us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for making these truths known to us. We ask tonight that you would answer these prayers for your glory, not for us, not for our righteousness, but because of your mercy and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.